Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all on this wonderful, cold uh, Sunday morning. It's been kind of nice to have the, the cold come in. I was uh, pleasantly surprised on Christmas Day. It actually felt like Christmas uh, with the 28 degrees. I walked outside and was totally, totally shocked by it. But it's nice to have a break, I think. Uh, I just came from Chicago. I just moved here uh, in June. Uh, and I didn't know that cold could hurt, so I'm, I'm like, I'm okay with the weather that it's been, but it was nice uh, Christmas morning to have, have a change. Um, my name's Stephen, as I just said, I moved here uh, this past uh, May. My wife and I graduated from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I'm a pastoral fellow serving here, one of five actually, at Christ Community uh, across all the different campuses, and um, it's a two-year uh, position where I'm, uh, and I'm actually a quarter of the way through. It's kind of surprising that I'm already kind of that, that far in, but it's been wonderful. My, both my wife, Kaylee, and I have really uh, just enjoyed and are so grateful for the, the welcome, the relationships, the community that we've experienced here. Um, you guys moved before? Uh, there's so much to learn when you move. Um, Where's the, where's the grocery store? Where's the Target? Where's the Walmart? The Home Depot? You oftentimes are making that, that trip when you're moving into a home, right? Those kind of combination. But you also need to know like where the hospital is, right? Um, and how to get there. Um, there's so much to learn when you, when you move to a new area. And for some people, it's going to be really overwhelming. There's just, there's just so much. But for me, I actually really enjoy it because I actually really enjoy maps. Like I'm always thinking about maps. Uh, and, and, and that might not be normal for some, maybe most people, but for me, it's, it's, it's always in my mind. You know, I have this mental mind's eye map, and I place my, like, blue GPS dot down, right? And wherever I go, I'm, I'm making the journey, and I'm just figuring out where, where am I at, and how does this connect? And I'm just kind of downloading this Google map street view into my mind. Um, Kaylee and I, when we first got married, I tried to teach her how to do this. Um, <laughs> maybe force is a better word. Um, so I learned pretty quickly that it's not for everybody. But for me, uh, it's just something that uh, you can do to free yourself from GPS, right? So you don't need that device. You know, you're, you're tied to the phone. You know, just get it right. And so, like, so there'd be times where I'd take her out and, like, take her phone from her and be like, get us home. Uh, <laughs> didn't always work so well. Uh, <clears throat> I've, I've since matured from that. Uh, but uh, I kind of pride myself on this ability. Uh, I pride myself on being able to figure out where I am and, and, and where I'm going. Uh, but every once in a while, and I, I mean like rarely, 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 uh, I get lost. Uh, but it's like un- understandable, right? Like if, I, if, I'm, if I'm out by myself, I just call it uh, like an adventure. You know, I just got to rebrand it. I'm like, no, like I didn't miss a turn. Like I'm, I'm going this way. Um, and, and I'm just downloading the mental map, right? But there, there's a, a, other times where I'm in the car with Kaylee. Like we were driving to our community group. We were, we were in the, the Johnson's community group. And they live down by like 160th and Ridgeview. And we live, just Kaylee and I live right around the corner. So we're rarely going that, that way. But we jumped on K7 and we were heading down. And um, I hadn't really done the, 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 the turn. You know how K7 kind of turns into Old 56 or kind of like on top of each other. And then there's like one sign that's like this big, like over in the corner. And like, anyways. Um, <laughs> It's like helpful. Um, but, we're, you know, we're making the turn. And the, the first time we were going, uh, I was just kind of doing what I normally do, right? I'm totally confident. I know exactly where I'm at. We're trucking along. And I'm just reading, reading signs and just putting it in my map, right? Just filling in all the information. And I don't know how it all turns. I, I need to just sit down and look at the map sometime. But eventually, we got to this 190th. And I was like, hmm, helpful. Uh, I missed a turn. Uh, <laughs> You know, and I'm driving, I'm just like, the, the alarm's going off in my head, and then all of a sudden, the, the mental map just goes black, and uh, I'm like, remain calm, you've been here before, you know what to do, 
Kaylee still doesn't know that, you know, we're lost. She doesn't need to know, you know. Uh, so, you know, left turn here, left turn there, you know, making my way. And then we arrive and we're like 20 minutes late, right? Uh, and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, we, I guess we should have left earlier if we wanted to be on time. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm the worst. I realize that. Um, but the problem is, isn't my driving. I mean, some of you might be thinking, yes, Stephen, it really is. Uh, but the, the problem is, is that the, there's this unwillingness, this refusal within me um, to, to admit that I've made a mistake, to admit that I've done something wrong. And it doesn't simply just affect my gas tank. It'll affect just about everything I do. And this desire to be right will ruin me. My friendships, my marriage, it'll, it'll ruin everything. My guess is most of you here know exactly what I'm talking about. It's this unwillingness to apologize to your roommate, to your friend, to your coworker. It's this desire to hide your mistakes and come up with rationalization after rationalization, rationalization, reason after reason, as a why you're not wrong, as a why you don't need to look at it. And frankly, it's this unwillingness to own our junk. It's this unwillingness to own our sin, to admit that somebody else out there knows better than I do. And the problem is, is that we don't realize that we're on a road that isn't merely off course. We're on a road that leads to destruction. And if we think that we're barely off, then if I just try a little harder, if I just give it a little bit more effort, one of these days, I'll get to where I need to be. You know what? New Year's is Friday, right? So I'll get it, I'll get it straightened out then. Starting Friday, I'm going to figure it all out. <laughs> In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gets it right when he says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And, you've, and if you've taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not... Uh, mean, I'm sorry, excuse me, to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing about, an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in this case, the man who turns back the soonest is the most progressive man. Going back is the quickest way on. And this is the, at the heart of Matthew 3. We're introduced to this prophet whose message is simply this, turning around is the only way forward. Let me say that again, turning around is the only way forward. So we'll look at this story. Many of us, I'm sure you're familiar with it, and we'll, we'll draw some conclusions at the end of it. But, but this comes after two chapters, right? And at the beginning of Matthew 1, there's this 400 years of silence. This, this people, this, this nation, Israel, has been, been waiting for, longing for this Messiah. And the silence was broken with baby Jesus. The, he, he arrives, he's come, he's with us. And then before long, Jesus takes off, his family, his family leaves, and King Herod, we heard this last week, King Herod hears of this supposed king, and he sends his people into Bethlehem, and he kills every baby, because he will not let, let go of his crown. And the, the assumed baby king is dead. It's, it is assumed that the baby king is dead. And 25 years later, the people have been stirred, and we, we get to Matthew chapter 3, and in the Matthew in this chapter opens with, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, John the Baptist is this really peculiar guy. I don't know if you, you've know, you know much about him, but I, I picture him as this, this guy who has a megaphone and this like, big sign, and he's holding it up in the middle of town, and all it says is turn or burn, right? Something that just like, it, it, it speaks to my soul, you know? Something that we all just love to hear, right? <laughs> no, who, who wants to hear that, right? And his... his uh, his clothing, Patrick said caramel hair. Um, can you imagine that? Um, no, it's, he's wearing camel hair. Now, I'm not exactly fashionable myself. If I ever look good, it's because my wife dressed me um, or somebody else, so I, believe me. Um, 
But this guy's got a camel hair tunic, and he's got a leather belt strapped around his waist. And he's out, and I'm just wondering, like, what is your deal? And he's eating, did you catch what he was eating? He's eating a locust and wild honey. It's like, is this isn't fear factor, bro. You know, this isn't man versus wild. You aren't Bear grills. Like, what's going on? It's like, is it just you shocking people? Are you, like, entertaining the masses? Well, like, not exactly. Like, the, the, these, this food that he's eating is actually the food for the poor. Uh, the poor were those that, that ate wild honey and locusts. It was, it was what made up their diet. And the, the clothing, the attire, it was a way of showing to demonstrate that he's living a radically different life. A radically different life. And see, he calls the people to repentance. Repentance isn't a word that is, exact, is exactly in vogue today. Right? But John uses it to call the people to make a radical return to God. It's a message for those who are, uh, who are no longer living according to God's ways. It involves all of your life to change both your mind and your actions. It's not just admitting that you're wrong. It's admitting and then doing the really hard part, the really hard part of turning away and running away from it. Right? John's message comes through, turn around. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, um, you know, a kingdom is a place with a king, right? Where whatever the king wants, he gets. Dallas Willard, uh, he puts it simply, uh, the kingdom of God is a place where whatever God wants gets done. The kingdom of me, however, is a place where whatever I want done gets done. We'll be talking about this kingdom at the start of the new year. So let me just simply say that John wants us to understand that the first step into the kingdom, the first step, uh, the, place, uh, the place of wholeness, forgiveness, life, and joy is repentance. And as, as John grew in notoriety and the people of Jerusalem and Judea came out to him and were being baptized in the Jordan River, they were confessing their sins. They were turning from their old ways and turning towards God. But there were some who came out with no intentions to look inward, they had no, no intent to change. They came merely to, to watch, to see who were finally coming out and straightening them, to straighten themselves out. They had their own assessment of exactly who needed this change and likely thought to themselves, about time that person showed up. We'll see if it, that change actually sticks. And John sees these holier than thou, these Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to watch, and he grabs a megaphone, <laughs> he grabs a sign, this is where he gets the, the turn or burn message. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you for, to free from the wrath to come. Now, I can't tell you how many times I hear you brood of vipers as like just a slam these days, right? <laughs> Basically never. Um, uh, but it's not exactly a good thing, right? He's, he's, he's associating with snakes. So if you're, if you're reading Harry Potter, this is like the Slytherin, the Slytherin type, right? But scripturally speaking, snakes aren't necessarily a good thing. Right? If you probably know Genesis 3, where there's Adam and Eve, and she's in the garden, right? She's got the fruit and the snake, right? So John the Baptist is looking at the Pharisees and the, prophets, uh, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's saying, you're a son of the snake. It's a powerful, blunt, just forceful word. He's not being subtle whatsoever. Before they can defend themselves, John beats them to their objections. He says, you think you're just fine because you, you're a great, great, great-great-great-great-grandchild of Abraham, the, the man who was given promises way back in Genesis. He said, it's, it doesn't matter. It's not a matter of you being good enough. It doesn't boil down to you just doing the right things and perfecting yourself and never messing up, which, in all honesty, it's something that I probably would have said myself. I, I probably would have said something like, you don't know anything about me, you know. I grew up in the church. I've been in, I've been in church since the womb, you know. I've been to every VBS. I've been to every youth camp. I went on Wednesday night. I went on on Sunday morning, I mean, if, 
if it was something to be done at the church with his people, I was there. I've done it. I've been, I've been a missionary. I've been on mission trips. I've been an intern. I've gone to seminary. I, I know words like ecclesiology, eschatology, and soteriology, right? I'm, and I'm a pastor. So I just drop the mic, walk away, and like, boom. <laughs> what is there to say, right? But John looks me square in the eyes. says, you're wrong, Stephen. You're wrong. It's not about you doing some things and not doing others. That once you've created a stellar resume, you'll be accepted. That's your problem. You think it's all about you. It's not. God doesn't need you. You're not the center of his universe or his kingdom. God can make even stones into true children. The borders of God's kingdom go far beyond your little family tree and your puny kingdom. His kingdom is for all people, for every person who would humble themselves and repent. So to the hard-hearted and the broken-hearted comes the same unchanging message. Turning around is the only way forward. And so... John's there in the river, and he, he, he looks out, and he sees the anticipated one arrive at the banks. And he, the king wasn't slain years ago by Herod. He lives, and he's making his way in, making his way towards him. And as he approaches him and wades into the water, in humility, he asks him for Jesus to baptize him. And then Jesus speaks for the first time in the book of Matthew, and we hear his words. It's not baby Jesus crying in a manger or a boy in a temple or him calling the first disciples. He replies to John's refusal. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And I can't help but wonder what's going through John's mind. Moments ago, he's calling out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees, knowing that they are unlikely and unwilling participants of his baptism. And now he's holding the long-awaited Messiah in his arms. And as he dunks Jesus into the water and he comes up, John experiences the triune God in a way that, only, that we can only imagine. As, as Jesus comes up, the heavens open, and he sees the, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming and resting on Jesus. And God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this amazing moment. Amazing moment. And, and if John had any doubts about the identity of Jesus, they're gone. This is the one I've been pointing to all along. He knows it. And you may be wondering, why exactly did Jesus need to be baptized? And what is it, what is it exactly going on with to fill, fulfill all righteousness, right? Jesus was perfect, right? Why, what was he doing there getting baptized? Like, did he have anything to repent of? Well, no. There are a number of expl explanations and reasons given, and I'm convinced of at least three. So let me, let me tell you those real quick. So first, in his baptism, Jesus endorses John's ministry as legitimate. Jesus' presence at the river and, particip and participation in the baptism is a way of publicly aligning himself with John's message, it's a way of him saying, who's, been John, who's John been talking about all along? It's me. Second, in his, in his baptism, he stands with us. He identifies with us, humanity. He could have stood from afar and called sinners to repent. Yet he came and dwelt with his people, Emmanuel, God with us. And third, in his baptism, Jesus assesses, assumes the role of suffering servant. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, this may sound a little bit odd, but years and years before Jesus' day, Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. And he talks about, in particular, about how the servant would come and suffer uh, for the sins of the people, that they might be healed and clean. And as Jesus comes out of the water, two things happen. The Spirit comes down like a dove and rests on him, which identifies Jesus as the one spoken of in Isaiah. It's a, it's a way of saying, this is the suffering servant. 
And we also hear the words of, of the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well, well pleased. Now, Psalm 2 is, is a psalm that Nathan preached on uh, this, past, this past August. It's, it's, a, it's a royal psalm, and it's another way of, of, of God um, identifying who Jesus is. It, he, he quotes, actually, from 2.7. It says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's, it's a way of saying Jesus is this king. He is the king. And with these words, God's foreshadowing the fact that Jesus is going to be the crucified king. He's, he's going to be uh, he's going to be crucified. So here at the beginning, um, at the beginning of Jesus' uh, ministry, his identity is, is, is made clear. And the, the same message that we hear at the banks of the Jordan is the same message that we hear today. And it's turning around is the only way forward. It's the only way forward. So what does it mean for us? It means this. First, that you need to repent and so do I. You need, to, you need to repent and so do I. It's this interesting thing that I can know nothing about your life, nothing that you've done, and be able to say with full confidence, you need to turn around and keep at it. Because I know that to be true for myself. And it's true for all people. And being, a, being from a Christian family or playing the part isn't enough. And in fact, the more religious you are, the less you see the need to repent. And ironically, the more you grow as a, and mature as a Christian, there's an increasing awareness of the ugliness in your, of your sin and how pervasive it is in your life, which leads you back into repentance, back into turning towards God and saying, teach me, teach me, teach me your ways, right? Which leads to the second point that turning around should change your life. It's not just merely uh, remorse or guilt. It's, it's actually moving from an old way to a new way. I really struggle with this word should. Um, should. Should has a really powerful effect uh, on most of us. Uh, it has this, this, this ability to either puff us up <laughs> uh, or, or cut us down, right? If, if, you're, if you're able to, um, to take shoulds and put them into practice, right? It's what the Pharisees did. It has this ability to, to, make, you, to make you look at yourself and say, look how good I look. Hey, everybody, I'm awesome, Right? And it puts you in a place where you come in, come in like a Pharisee and you begin to look at others and you just begin to, to, to should all over them, right? You're just telling them exactly what they need to be doing, right? And, it, and, and should also has this terrible, terrible way of, of snaking in and getting into your soul and tearing you apart. This past week I was, I was talking to my wife Kaylee uh, about this sermon and, and, and in so many ways... Um, I, I know, I know the, these thoughts of the Pharisees. I, I know what it's like to be them and to think that way. And just being drawn to repentance this, this whole time. And, and um, as I was sharing it, I could see my wife's body language change. Um, I could see her just kind of take, take what I'm saying and, and just processing it. But it wasn't a good kind of body language. <laughs> um, and and as, I, as I looked at her, I realized, <laughs> like, Oh no, um, shoulds are coming in. Um, and um, she said something to the effect of, um, well, I don't, I don't ever think of you as someone who's like a Pharisee because I know how much more difficult it is for me to admit that I'm wrong than it is for you. And I asked her for permission to share this, but um, in that moment, I saw her begin to compare her, herself to me. And 
comparison it just doesn't belong here. This, this should isn't a matter of comparing yourself to one another, right? That's not what we're talking about here. When we compare ourselves to one another, we're doing something that we're never called to do, ever. If there's one person we look to, it's Jesus. When we, and when, when we look at one another, a brother or sister, we begin to compare ourselves, we get into this competitive spirit as if I'm better than you. And it's just something that we're never, never to do. Friends, don't compare yourself. Because it, when, when you begin to compare yourself, I, I saw this in my wife. Um, you know, it's one thing for, for me to come. I don't know if I wouldn't want to do this. But if, let's say somebody else, <laughs> for the sake of uh, explaining this. If someone else came to my wife and attacked her, and said, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And she, she has this internal ability to be like, you don't know what you're talking about, right? We all have that. And, and, and she can actually go through the process of, of figuring out, is there a grain of truth in that? The, the scary thing is, is that when it's internal, when it's internal, what I saw in her and her body language as she changed was that there wasn't someone inside, right, to be able to defend, to defend herself, right? To be able to figure out what's true and what's not true. And it just took her down to a place of despair, and I know what it's like to be there, to be at a, at a place of not knowing how to distill truth from not truth, and just to feel guilt and shame just pile up and pile up and just take you down. And, and I, when I get there, when I get to that place of feeling overwhelmed by, by guilt and shame, I feel like I have like two options. Like one is like I need to just check out completely. <laughs> I can take like the feelings, the thoughts, I can just compartmentalize it, just throw it away, right, just stuff it. It, doesn't, it never really goes away. But I just stuff it. It's like I can't think about it. I have to do something else, right? Or I sit in it, believing these refrains that are sung over me. You are a terrible person. And it just takes me to a place where I start believing these truths internally. I don't know if you know those lies. But let me tell you that they're not true. They're not true. In, in, in C.S. Lewis's um, The Great Divorce, there's this, this, this uh, story where a man, he's carrying around this, this lizard on his shoulder, and it's a metaphor for, for lust, and the lizard uh, just really won't shut up. Uh, and an angel comes over to him and offers to silence it. Uh, he says, that'd be great. And, and, and as soon as the angel begins to, to do anything, he, he cries out, that That hurts. <laughs> And, and the angel looks at him and says, don't you want me to kill it? And, and the man says, who said anything about killing it? I just want it to be, to be quiet. It's embarrassing me. Uh, the man gives excuse after excuse, refusing to be whole, refusing to be transformed. He's just looking for tweaks. He doesn't want to be transformed. And the, the reality is, is that if we want to change, if we really truly want to change, repentance isn't just merely beating your head against the floor making yourself feel bad and piling on the guilt and shame. True repentance, a turning, it's not possible through you and your own efforts. Turning around, this is the last point, turning around requires a death. The only way to truly turn your life is to die with Jesus. Turning around requires a death, the death of God's son. Earlier I asked the question, why did Jesus get baptized? Jesus doesn't get baptized merely for his sake, but for ours. He came and dwelt, uh, and dwelt with us for a reason, with a purpose. And we see this as Matthew, the book of Matthew unfolds. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph in his dream? 
said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The only way for God to save humanity was to be a human himself. And as one of us, he is able to be baptized, so to speak, in our place. Not just baptized in the Jordan by John, but killed on a Roman cross for us. And on the cross, he bore the wrath that was due those who ought to have paid it. And three days later, he rose again from the grave, victorious over sin and death. And having paid the penalty himself, Jesus offers forgiveness and grace to those who would trust in him. Jesus came to save us from our sins, and it has been accomplished. What does it mean to have, to have placed your faith, not in yourself, but in Jesus? It means admitting that you're a mess, that you're broken, that you're, you need a Savior. And this is why Christians are baptized today. It's a way to publicly say, I deserve death, I need a Savior, and my faith and hope are in Jesus. I go under the water recognizing that, Je that Jesus died the death that I deserve, and I come out trusting that he has given me eternal life. When you've repented and you believe, God's word over your life is sweet. He calls you son, daughter. With you, I am well pleased. He calls you child of God. See, turning around is where life begins. It's, it's where life is and where we continue to live because we can't do it ourselves. We walk it with Jesus, filled with the Spirit, and his disciples some 2,000 years ago were far from perfect, but they knew where to begin. So friends, hear, hear John's message one last time. Turning around is the only way forward. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I just come to you now, um, recognizing uh, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you know the situations for each and every one of us in this room, where we are, uh, what we're doing, and what we're not doing. And so, Lord, would, through your Spirit, would you be the one moving and convicting, stirring us to repent of the things that we ought not to be doing and to turn to that which we should? Father, would you work in us, through your Spirit, a life that's being transformed, being made continually into your Son? being transformed into, into, into following after him. Lord, would you lead us in your ways? We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.